0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist
1: Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings.
0: G'day dad, how are you going today?
1: Good thanks Rowan and looking forward to continuing on this topic.
0: Absolutely and well we may as well get straight into it for today because I know that we've got a a lot to go through and it is a a fascinating topic which we've called developing yourself and your self-control. So... This is a, a bit of a big topic in a way in terms of something that's been spoken about really from ancient Greek philosophy right through to nature and, and others even since then. So I suppose just to give us a bit of a broad
1: overview, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, we're continuing on with the theme of schema therapy and the insights that were developed by Jeff Young in developing schema therapy to look at the kind of personality patterns that can lead to extra kind of difficulties that people can have. So when people seek help, they come to see a psychologist, often it's for help with anxiety or depression or relationship problems. Sometimes there are these underlying personality patterns behind it and... There are five different areas, and last time we looked at the areas that relate to disconnection and rejection. But this time we're looking at two more types of problems related to core needs that weren't met so well, generally in childhood experience. One of the core needs is for developing autonomy or competence or a sense of identity. So that's developing yourself. But another core need is to help develop our self-control by experiencing realistic limits in life. And so this gets across some of the important experiences for us to have in childhood through parenting and other experiences, ways of developing our sense of autonomy, so developing yourself as a person, but also developing your self-control, that way of responding to realistic limits.
0: And it is a fascinating topic because, you know, it has come up on the, the podcast before in terms of this idea of, you know, be, be your true self or, or act in accordance with yourself and, and all that sort of stuff, it it's something that maybe gets a little bit overspoken about in terms of what we're going to be talking about today. I, I think it's a really interesting context to look at it in because we're going to be looking at some of the things that can maybe disrupt finding your true self or, you know, whatever that does mean. And The way that we're going to be going through that is, of course, we'll be going through the needs and how they relate to the different schemas. But we'll be going back over the surrender, avoidance and overcompensation again, just in terms of maybe how people respond to those different schemas. So if we just go back over, I know we spoke about it a little bit last week, but I think it is important to reiterate, what are those main reactions that people can have to their schema and what do they mean in terms of surrender, avoidance and overcompensation?
1: OK, well, surrender means giving in to a schema so you act consistent with it. So let's say the first schema that Jeff Young outlines in terms of the impaired autonomy or performance areas is a dependent schema, a dependence-incompetence schema. So this is where the person underneath it all sees themselves as somewhat needy or incompetent to be able to manage situations independently, take on challenges in- independently. And so... If people are going to surrender to that schema, then naturally they'll tend to ask for excessive help. They'll find it hard to put forward their opinion, they'll have difficulty making decisions and they'll tend to choose partners who might be somewhat controlling or overprotective. So an example of that would be early on in my therapy experience I saw a number of women who are experiencing depression and one of the things that came across fairly clearly is that they're quite non-assertive. And part of that was also not being so clear on what they thought or felt or were interested in in particular situations. And so assertiveness therapy was very popular then in the early 80s. It was very commonly used for people who had difficulties with depression. And you found that some people found it more difficult to identify what their thoughts and feelings and preferences were. And they might be in relationships where they may be over-reliant on a partner for making decisions about all sorts of of things, but then feeling that their needs weren't met so well, that they might not have expressed that as fully, but that would be an example of being somewhat dependent or lacking that more autonomy, and that would interfere with people's well-being, and so they'd be more inclined to become depressed. That would be one example where it would help for people to develop more assertiveness. And
0: how about avoidance? Again, we spoke about this last week. We may as well keep going on with the dependence incompetence schema. What is avoidance in in terms of the reactions to the schemas and how could that show up for someone with a dependence or incompetence schema?
1: Okay, well then if people are avoiding the schema, then rather than, say, directly asking for help, they might procrastinate on decisions and not get into situations where they might need to take some kind of adult responsibility or express an independent view. So they'll steer clear of those kind of situations where they might be on the spot. And
0: so just to, I suppose, broadly go over the avoidance thing, it really seems to me that steering clear idea is is a really central part of avoidance in terms of a schema. But how about overcompensation? How could that show up for someone with an impaired autonomy or performance schema?
1: Now, that can be where someone acts excessively reliant. So when people are overcompensating for a schema, they're acting as though it's not true. So that might be a situation where someone would be in a circumstance where it would be fair enough to ask for help or ask someone else's advice, but despite being a little bit unsure what to do, the person carries on themselves, like trying to show that self-reliance, but it doesn't work out too well because they might have been best off asking for help in that kind of situation. So that's where they're fighting against the schema and it might be hidden then, their feeling of dependence might be hidden by their attempt to be overly self-reliant, which kind of masks it. Well, that is interesting. I probably find the
0: overcompensation reaction as interesting as any of them because it's it's kind of not intuitive in a way in terms of if we've got these underlying feelings to act like the opposite is true It doesn't necessarily seem like the most intuitive way of going about things, but I I must admit I can potentially relate at times to maybe being a little bit too independent and I wouldn't necessarily say that it means that I've sort of got issues with my schemas, but that is
1: one where I suppose I recognise myself on that spectrum in some ways, Dad. Yes, and that's one of the helpful things of thinking of schema therapy in this way. It relates to normal survival modes of dealing with anxiety or threat. So we talk about fight or flight or freeze. Well, in a sense, giving in to a schema is a little bit like freezing. You just go along with it. Flight is where you try and avoid it, like not be in situations where it comes up. And fight is where you look to overcompensate for it in some way. Well, let's keep going on with the
0: schemas then because I know that the next one is in some ways related to a dependence or incompetence schema And the next is enmeshment or undeveloped self. So what, first of all, is an enmeshment or undeveloped self
1: schema? Okay, now this is typically where someone has an extreme over-involvement with a parent. So I think of that TV series, Mother and Son, that was on quite a number of years ago with Gary MacDonald and Ruth Cracknell, a famous Australian comedy, and it's about this adult son who I think must have been in his 40s or something like that, and there he is with his very demanding mother, and he finds it very difficult to have any kind of independent life or autonomy from her, so that's a real example of struggle-finding himself. But just as a clinical example, I actually mentioned someone in the previous podcast where there was a particular client who had a social isolation schema. So she didn't have close friends. She wasn't in any adult relationship. In her late 20s, early 30s, she was living at home with her mother. And you could see there's a very unhealthy relationship with her mother. The way that she referred to mother, that's what she called her, but she often referred to her mother and what her mother's wishes were or thoughts or expectations of her in a way that showed that she just really hadn't been developing herself as a young adult. She hadn't been individuating, so to speak. And the mother had all sorts of demands on her as well, which kept her a bit stuck in that kind of situation. There was a kind of overprotectiveness that you can also get when people develop that dependence. They haven't been encouraged to make decisions from early on in their life. And that was the example I mentioned where I asked the client if she'd ever heard the expression, no man is an island. And she came back the next session and she said, you know how you mentioned that phrase to me to think about no man is an island? My mother just started this literary course and she asked me to do the essay for her and the essay was, no man is an island. That had happened just after I'd raised this expression with her. So that was a spooky bit of synchronicity, but it just showed how enmeshed also the mother and daughter were. The mother's doing this creative writing course and she finds it even difficult to come up with an idea herself, so she asks her daughter to write the essay for her. That's how enmeshed they were. But as you can imagine, the daughter was often quite angry with the mother as well, that she might not have expressed much directly with the mother. And that anger, you could say, is a kind of overcompensation response. The surrender response is going along with what a mother wants, finding it difficult to develop her own separate ideas, even staying living with a mother when she rather would have had more autonomy than that. And say in contrast to that, avoidance would be, well, partly what she was doing as well, avoiding being in an adult relationship, avoiding taking on that more independence just steering clear of relationships or even thinking of getting into a relationship or exploring that possibility so that client was not just socially isolated she was also caught up in a dependent and enmeshment schema and unfortunately stemming from an overprotective initially but also demanding mother. And so
0: what I wonder then is well you answered it a little bit in a way in terms of what is the difference between, say, a dependent schema and an enmeshment schema? Because it almost seems a little bit like, say, for example, dependence is, is kind of one way, for lack of a better term, in terms of someone might be dependent on a parent. But then I wonder is enmeshment, that dependence almost goes two ways a little bit in terms of someone might be dependent on a parent
1: who's also dependent on them as well? Yes, well, I think one thing with a dependent schema generally, it's often where people might find difficulty expressing independent opinions. Now, they might still have developed a separate long-term relationship. They might live well away from their families and their parents. So in a sense, they have an independent lifestyle that way, but they find it hard to make decisions and form independent ideas, find themselves that way. It's a more extreme form, often when there's an enmeshment schema, because the person tends to have this more extreme emotional involvement, commonly with a parent, and more stuck, if you like, with their parent in their family situation, finding it more difficult not just to individuate, but in some ways even to move away. And before we get
0: too much further, I I just want to clarify something with the overcompensation schema, because, you know, surrender... Basically, a pattern that keeps appearing and appearing. Avoiding, we're doing everything that we can to not be in that situation where we're, for lack of a better term, triggered. Our anxiety is triggered. But overcompensation, in terms of acting the opposite to something, because I can think about, say, surrender and avoidance, and I wonder if there could almost maybe be this sense of you know, someone can reflect on what they do and they can go, oh, you know what, like in, in my actions there, I was maybe surrendering or, or avoiding my schema. But with overcompensation, it seems like it might be a little bit more complicated in some ways because someone could think, for example, "Oh, you know, who am I? How have I reacted and behaved in certain situations? And the presence of a schema might not necessarily be so obvious if someone's acting the complete opposite way. So I suppose Is it easy to identify a schema, maybe within yourself or within someone else, when they do have that overcompensatory aspect? Because someone could, you know, for example, reflect on their life and think, you know, like, I I honestly don't think there is, say, the presence of that schema there. And I wonder if it could potentially be hard to identify at times. For example, the difference between someone who has quite a balanced way of going about things And someone who's maybe overcompensating for a schema, when you're thinking about it in the context of a schema, if that makes sense, like looking at through it through that lens, it could be hard to identify at times whether someone has, for lack of a better term, a a well-developed enough sense of self to not be reacting to a schema at all. That could look quite similar to if someone was overcompensating in a way for a schema.
1: Yes, it does get complicated, and that's where it helps reflect on a person's experience, say, in relationships or their work life over an extended period of time. So that helps schema show up more. But it does show that often these reactions can be somewhat unconscious. For example, last time we talked about a defectiveness schema. But there are times where people can come across as very arrogant or treating other people quite poorly, and yet there's this kind of feeling that the person's Ego, if you like, is a bit brittle. Like, why is it that they're having a go at other people? And that gives a hint. Often you get a bit of a feeling that that person maybe isn't so self-assured as they'd like to come across. They might be speaking with an authoritative tone of voice. But just the whole context and their manner and the kind of relationships that they've had in the past suggest that something's you're know, not quite right, something's not going well for them. And that person might continue on, in a sense, kidding themselves that they feel if you like superior to others if they're overcompensating for defectiveness but it might be when a relationship breaks down or something like that then they might become depressed and it might come more to the fore their self-doubt and so that becomes more unmasked in some ways or it might be a person with abandonment schema and so we know something from their past it might be for example In their childhood, they might have felt abandoned by a parent or a long-term relationship ended that was a very difficult kind of relationship where they never felt secure in that relationship. And rather than just steering clear of other relationships, which would be a kind of avoidance, the person might get into a relationship but become so clingy, like we described last time, so dependent or clingy that it just pushes the other person away. So that's, in a sense, bringing about the opposite of what they would maybe wish for so that's got a quality also of overcompensation in it but it's often the context over time shows these things but yes people can be quite unconscious about the motivations behind their overcompensating behaviors
0: and so this might be just a a gross oversimplification so feel free to correct me if i'm wrong here but like the, the term authenticity comes to mind a little bit in terms of it's become this kind of buzzword about you know be authentic this that and the other thing but as we're having this conversation like it, it strikes me that maybe acting in a way that's authentic to our identity maybe over a longer period of time is that maybe a way to avoid maybe the over influence of schemas in some way because now that I'm thinking about it, it strikes me that It might be a little bit unfair at times to, if someone's got a history where they've had quite a a disrupted upbringing, for example, well, to expect someone to be authentic in in all situations, it just strikes me that that's potentially, you know, a a pretty difficult task and a little bit maybe even unfair if someone's gone through something that they've got no choice over themselves.
1: Yes, I suppose it's like we talked about earlier on, that notion of being yourself in some ways... One of the hardest things to do to be able to be ourselves when other people might have different expectations or they might judge us potentially in a certain kind of way or we have to even figure out underneath it all what do we want and who we are and what we're on about but another level we can't help but be ourselves so in a sense it's one of the easiest things to be to be ourselves. And I think then what really helps is looking to have an openness to have a more true understanding of ourselves, including our parts. We talked in our chair work episode a couple of episodes ago how we all have parts – We all have a vulnerable child in us in some particular ways. At times we can be angry or feel let down in certain ways. At times we can feel confident and authoritative in different kind of ways. We've got lots of different parts and aspects to us. We want to have different parts too, like being sometimes like a a playful child and not have to be over-responsible. But then there are other times where we do want to be particularly responsible and on the lookout and care for other people and maybe put our needs even to one side while we have that kind of priority which parenting partly includes that in itself different roles we have when we're at work or when we're with friends at a party these are different aspects of ourselves as well so what really helps people's development is being able to develop your spontaneity and play and being yourself that way, but also some levels of achievement, which is partly what we're talking about with these schema around autonomy and performance. Achievement, well, it helps to be able to do things that give us satisfaction and draw on our strengths, but we also want to do things that, like, suit us. So... You know, are we choosing the work that we're doing and the interests that we're pursuing because that's really suited to us as individuals or are we doing it because we think we should or we were taught to or because a parent wanted us to do that or that's what their expectations were. That's where these issues like dependence or enmeshment can be especially important because we can lose sight or find it hard to see who we are as individuals And so a whole lot of psychological growth and development is, well, what Jung termed as individuation, finding ourselves, but also while we do that, being able to get on well with other people. And I
0: think that is something to highlight here in terms of, you know, authenticity is something that you can potentially cultivate a little bit if you bring more understanding to each of your parts, I think. But, Dad, let's get on to the next schema, which is vulnerability to harm or illness. So for surrender, for example, with this schema, would that be basically just giving in to the idea that we're going to be ill or harmed very often? So it might be, for example, someone who's a a hypochondriac, for lack of a better term. Would they, for example, be someone who potentially has a vulnerability to harm or illness schema and are responding
1: in a surrendering way? Well, the thing is, when people have the vulnerability to harm schema, yes, they've got this general outlook that things are going to go wrong. Things are going to end up as catastrophic or a disaster, and that can include health-wise. So it can be an area that adds to the intensity of someone's obsessive-compulsive symptoms. For example, if they think that something will go really wrong if they don't engage in a compulsive ritual... Or if people have panic around the feeling that things will go wrong. For example, I can remember around the time of 9-11 when it was terrible. The plane smashed into the World Trade Center in New York. I can remember one lady I saw at the time who often was on the lookout for danger and things going wrong, and she saw a plane taking off from Avalon Airport, which we can actually see from our practice here on the other side of cryo Bay. There's Avalon Airport, there are planes that would take off from there, and when she saw a plane in the sky, her thoughts would go to, oh, that might be you know, like some other disaster waiting to happen. And so that would come up in a range of ways where she was on the lookout for threat, But another classic example I can think of, which also overlapped with dependence and enmeshment, there was a young adult fellow living at home who was finding it very difficult to establish himself in life, find work that suited him. He was quite dependent in a number of ways, but also he was on the lookout for things to not just go wrong with his body physically with anxiety, but he would have different ideas of terrible things that could happen. Now one day he let slip about one of his fears that showed that there was some gain he got from this and he said in terms of his fears of what bad things could happen, he said my favourite one is that there could be leakage around the side of the microwave, the microwaves could come out of the oven and harm him in some way. Now he did seem to have some actual anxiety about that but the way he said His favourite one was a bit of an unusual thing to say, to say the least. But what tended to happen in that family is he'd get lots of reassurance for expressing these different kind of fears. And again, he was acting much more childlike than you would expect for someone, I think, in their 20s at the time. But the amount of assurance he would get from his family seemed like it was some kind of payoff. But that was also an example where he was somewhat enmeshed that way so he was getting stuck in these ways of looking to get I suppose some kind of recognition from others some kind of support from others but it was actually just accentuating his anxiety because even unconsciously he's continually looking out for these things that might go wrong and before we get into avoidance and overcompensation
0: what really comes to mind there is just how common that could be for example if someone has a a parent who is sick themselves or or maybe experiences harm themselves when they're a young kid. Like, someone could fear that they have maybe a genetic predisposition to a particular medical condition or whatever. Like, it just strikes me that that could be something that could come up for people. But if we look at avoidance and overcompensation, I'm quite interested about these ones in terms of vulnerability or harm or illness because to me on the surface, they potentially look quite similar. Like, if we look at, say, avoidance... Well, potentially you could, you know, feel sick and have this anxiety about, oh, you know, what what could this mean? It could be something really quite serious. So you think, oh, I, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to the doctor because I don't want to get bad news. For example, that could look very similar to if someone was overcompensating for a vulnerability to harm or illness schema because someone could go, you know, I'm, I'm invincible and, you know, I don't need to go to the doctor because nothing will happen to me. How are those two differentiated in terms of a a vulnerability to illness or harm, Schema?
1: Okay, well, in terms of avoidance, the main thing that would show up would be some kind of phobic avoidance. So people steer clear of the particular situation, like the microwave, or if they thought the roof would fall in, they, they don't go in that particular area, for example. So whatever people think might go wrong, just basically steering clear of it. But overcompensation for it, so acting the opposite can mean, for example, a kind of recklessness. And one classic example I can think of, a general example, I didn't see a client in this position myself, but apparently on the battlefield, if a number of soldiers had been there and seen all sorts of carnage and they were developing this feeling that their number might be up very soon, apparently a number of people started to act quite recklessly They'd be standing up in situations where they should be crouched. They're they're acting as though it's a kind of fatalistic thing, whether, well, in that case, whether they get shot or not. And so they're acting as though they don't have this particular fear. But underneath it all, it was probably driven by this fear, almost a feeling of inevitability that something would go wrong.
0: Which I've actually heard that in some ways train that I believe in say for example the the SAS and, and these types of military forces that for example if you're on the front line and, and people are actively shooting at you I believe they kind of say you know you've kind of to perform got to accept your death in a way because a bullet could basically come from anywhere and shoot you sort of thing and Either you fully conceptualise that and, you know, if it was me, I'd probably be in a a bundle on the floor as, you know, a bit of a, a puddle of a human, Dad. But at the same time, in order to, I suppose, carry out their tasks that they need to, they basically in some ways expect it to happen and are trained to almost perceive this inevitability about it so that they can go, well, all right, even if that's the case What are the things that I can do and and how do I basically still carry on as a function? And what I wonder about that, and it was interesting even as you were describing that there, another thing that came to mind was I believe the British officers traditionally in war and, and even in some quite big wars would have this principle where if you're an officer, you would never cower. So you'd never duck. Uh, you'd basically just sit there as a, a bit of a sitting target, and there was this almost stiff upper lip perspective that came into, for example, the culture of British officers. And so, what I wonder about that is, is maybe that was motivated by people who either had a vulnerability to harm or illness schema, or had a perspective of that and how people could, I suppose, react in those situations. Because it's so interesting that, uh, as we talk about that, you know, we talk about it as something that we maybe want to avoid, but. From my very limited understanding about, you know, military stuff, that's trained into you in some ways and there's elements of
1: culture that are built around this idea of inevitability. Yes, that almost sounds like a kind of socialised form of overcompensation because basically what you would hope in that situation to be effective and with these schema we're talking about performance. So to perform better, people might need to accept some risks like a Formula One driver, but you'd still hope that they would take a lot of extra care in managing with that. And so certainly in a dangerous situation, you hope that people would look to duck and keep out of a line of fire. And that side of things, even if there needs to be a degree of acceptance about the risks that are there. We could think of another example, for example, with COVID. Now, that's where I would say I did see a couple of clients who would have had I would have thought a more markedly exaggerated fear of becoming infected even despite taking all sorts of precautions whereas we can imagine what overcompensation would be is if the person thought oh look it's inevitable that I'm going to get sick and then just didn't even like say wash their hands or take any care at all that would be an overcompensating kind of factor. Well, it's interesting the
0: way that you mentioned performance there because the next schema is failure. And what I wonder about the failure schema is I suppose how it relates to other schemas in a way because you can see how if someone, for example, had a defectiveness schema or even an enmeshment schema where they didn't necessarily feel that they could on their own terms do something how they would like to, you could see how potentially a failure schema would develop almost on a, a different level if that makes sense. So how does a failure schema show up and is it often related to other schemas as well?
1: Yes, that's a good point. It often is related to a couple of schemas. It can be defectiveness schema and it also can be an insufficient self-control schema that we'll talk about later on. But I'll mention here one of the most striking examples that I encountered of someone with a failure schema. I also referred to this fellow in the last episode who also was quite socially isolated. He was a young man who came in in his 20s. I was a similar age at the time. He's the one who came in with army camouflage pants. And this fellow, he was quite intelligent, but he hadn't had stable employment lasting any length of time for a long period of time, despite being quite bright. And I learned a lot about a failure schema from him also, the way that he described to me some insights that he developed. But this fellow was quite striking because we'd actually been having conversations about notions of expectations and achievement and fears of failure. We were talking explicitly about fears of failure for some time and he came in one day and he said, look, I think I understand what's been happening with me for a long time. I asked him, well, what do you mean? He said, I have a fear of success. Now, that's the first time I'd heard of the term. I've heard of it a fair bit in the decades since, but this was the first time I heard of it, and he described it like this. I was curious, what does a fear of success mean? He said, look, I've been in these situations in the past where it looked like I was getting some success, and then it was like the rug was pulled from under me. He said, there was one situation where I worked in a chemical factory, and I was promoted. They knew I was fairly bright. I was promoted, And I had a number of people under me who I could direct. And he said, and at that point, I developed an allergy to the chemicals I was exposed to that was medically tested. He said, I've been in this factory for some time, quite a few months, no allergy. He gets promoted, suddenly develops this allergy. And then he said, then there was another example when I was in this other job. I forgot exactly what it was, but you needed 20-20 vision for this other job. And he said, I was promoted there. Again, I had a number of people to supervise. And he said, at that point, I developed this vision defect assessed by an optometrist that meant I needed to wear glasses and thick glasses at that. And so he said, look, this is another situation. I started to experience some success. And then this happened. He said, look, I feel like I'm the pilot of a plane and there's someone in the back fiddling with the rudders which is quite an extraordinarily descriptive way of putting this like unconscious mechanism that's sabotaging someone, and that's got the sabotaging quality that can come with surrendering to a failure schema, but in this case it was his body doing it for him. It's almost like his mind and body unconsciously, subconsciously, was arranging for him to then basically be able to avoid the schema to not be in the situation where he had these challenging work roles. So part of it was surrendering to the schema almost unconsciously, but ultimately it was a kind of avoidance. Hence a fear of success is often, in my view, a fear of unanticipated failure, meaning the person starts to show some signs of success And they're fearful of something happening that will disrupt that. So it's almost like they get in first. They get the axe to fall, so to speak, rather than waiting for the axe to fall and thinking inevitably something will go wrong. So I thought that was just quite a remarkable example of how it can show up somewhat unconsciously.
0: And that, I suppose, highlights just how subconscious. Some of these things can be i think that is a, a brilliant description that he described there and is it the case then often when people bring more conscious awareness to their schemas that it's
1: a bit easier to deal with and understand it certainly made a difference with him and again i think his progress after that was somewhat incremental it was gradual but he's the fellow who ultimately he did get married have a child, I think his employment history was very checkered, I think he continued to have difficulties with drugs and alcohol for quite some period of time but by the same token his overall level of functioning was much better than, well as we described in the previous episode, his previous fantasy had been dying in a shootout with police which at one level you could say that's an extreme form also, well you don't have to get into any situation where you have a challenging work role if you're killed. In that kind of situation so that shows how people's fantasy can have an impact but I'd say also he did show some signs of overcompensation as well because he sometimes expressed a kind of arrogance in describing other people and maybe thinking they weren't so bright or so capable in some ways so that seemed to have an overcompensatory quality to it itself But there are different ways that people can overcompensate for a failure schema. They can try and overachieve or just work all the time. They're working so much that, again, it's interfering with their relationships, interfering with their well-being, and they're trying to ward off this feeling of underneath it all being a failure or maybe feeling defective.
0: And so just for clarity, it'd be good to go over this again with a failure schema, so Surrender for a failure schema could be, for example, if someone thinks, you know, oh, I'm, I'm such a failure, it's a foregone conclusion that I'm going to fail in this situation and so they might do something to sabotage their efforts in a way. Overcompensation might be acting as if, you know, well, I'm such a failure and this person next to me, they're not a failure, so I've got to bring them down to my level in a way, like you might come across in a certain way that is really demeaning to their achievements, but underlying it's because you've got this sense of, you know, oh, I might not be able to perform to their level. And then avoidance schema could be, for example, if someone thinks, well, you know what, I'm going to fail anyway. So what's the point of even, you know, applying myself in this situation or taking this opportunity? Because all that's going to happen at the end of it is, is I'll fail and, and be a failure. Is that a bit of an oversimplification or is that, for example, how a failure schema can come up in the different reactions?
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty much on track. Like surrender, people are obviously giving into it. So they see themselves as a failure, they sabotage themselves, they interpret their efforts as falling short of a certain kind of standard. So they're going along with this failure idea. Avoidance is steering clear of situations where they might be seen to fail or not. So they don't make, say, career goals. They don't get into challenging work situations uh, suitable to their kind of level. So they don't maybe risk failing a standard that they think they should reach. Whereas, yes, the overcompensation is acting as though the schema doesn't exist so much. So, again, they put in all this extra effort by trying to overachieve or working non-stop or otherwise, yeah, putting down other people's efforts in a certain kind of way, which would be also overcompensating for a defectiveness kind of schema. And so all of the schemas that we've spoken about so far, so dependence,
0: incompetence, enmeshment or undeveloped self, vulnerability to harm or illness and failure, so they all relate to, is it autonomy, competence and a sense of identity? So this idea of, say, finding yourself... But there was one thing you mentioned before in relation to failure and and how it can potentially show up when someone does have a failure schema is insufficient self-control and low discipline. And that relates to the need for realistic limits and self-control. So what is an insufficient self-control and low discipline schema?
1: Okay, now... This is a particularly interesting one because it has a number of characteristics that can overlap with some other problems like attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Now, but when this shows up, this insufficient self-control schema, it doesn't mean that people have ADHD, but it does mean that people do tend to show a degree of impulsivity, distractibility, people are often a bit disorganised, people might procrastinate in different ways people can also be prone to addictions so alcohol and drug dependence or abuse so these are patterns that are quite disruptive to people's life in some ways and we can imagine that if people do have this impulsivity and disorganized that might be one way that people do tend to develop a failure schema. And one way that people can have those patterns of impulsivity, distractibility, disorganisation, one way people can have that is from having ADHD, but certainly not in every situation. For example, in the past I worked a lot with people with anger management problems and so ran some of the early... Anger management groups, the first outpatient anger management groups in Victoria, ran them for about five years in a row. And nearly everybody who would have been in those groups, they were groups for men, generally would have been someone with an insufficient self-control and low discipline kind of pattern. And so what would happen at first is in these groups, people would often talk with a kind of bravado about how they'd got in this fight and how many bones they'd broken and all these heroics with their aggressive behaviour. And what struck me is after about five or six group therapy sessions, over five or six weeks, what you would start to see is they would present more as vulnerable little boys. Often in that kind of situation, there'd been a degree of emotional deprivation. They often were raised in environments which were quite chaotic there might have been quite a degree of domestic violence or abuse in those kind of situations. So that's one way that people can develop the lesser self-control, growing up in chaotic kind of environments. So they didn't have the realistic limits set. They weren't given the kind of guidance and shown the kind of healthy modelling to develop what we call that frustration tolerance and ability to maybe put aside immediate gratification for longer term goals. That's one of the patterns that can come up. So again, chaotic environments can contribute to that. But the other kind of situation too might be where children were maybe indulged, they didn't have limits set for them so much, they might have that low frustration tolerance from, again, a degree of, you could even call it a degree of laziness or not applying themselves in certain kind of ways and so that was another pattern where people could develop low discipline and this shows the importance when children are growing up to be given guidance that there are realistic limits set maybe that modelling of behaviour where parents show concern for other people not just act on impulse again be able to find that balance between pursuing your own interests but considering other people as well.
0: Well, this strikes me as being a bit of a complicated one in some ways, like insufficient self control and, and low discipline. Like, first of all, it strikes me that in some ways to reflect properly and look into maybe your schemas in a way takes a little bit of discipline, a little bit of self control. And it strikes me that if someone had insufficient self control and, and low discipline, like, Most people in that situation, I wonder, would they act, say, with surrender in terms of acting as if, you know, I I don't have sort of discipline and self-control like... It doesn't really strike me that there's much of maybe an obvious overcompensation element there because if someone's lacking in discipline, well, they could potentially find it hard to even conceptualize what being disciplined over a long period of time is if they have been, for example, very impulsive and have struggled with addictions. So how does someone often respond to a insufficient self-control and low discipline
1: schema? Okay, well, one of the things there is how people come into therapy. And one of the ways that people will come into therapy is because they feel that their lives are a bit out of control in some ways because it seems a bit chaotic. They've been losing jobs, they've been maybe losing relationships and they're frustrated with that losing, maybe as a result of their aggressive behaviour in a relationship or maybe as a result of an addiction or just otherwise feeling like they're not meeting their goals in life. And so when people come along themselves, it's often out of that sense of frustration. That also includes the people who turned up for help for anger management all those years ago. Often, when they came in, they're around about, say, 30 or early 30s. And I'd sometimes say to them, look, you've done well to come in now because people often need at least 10 years of losing as a result of their aggressive behaviour. They've lost jobs, they've lost relationships, things have been chaotic. Often people need about 10 years of losing before they figure out, hey, wait a minute, a lot of the problem is me. I need to do something about that. And so that's where, from their pain, often they'd present depressed at that time as well. And they'd recognise that there was this problem of being out of control in some ways. So feeling somewhat helpless with that, that would be part of their motivation of seeking help. But it was particularly their depression, their frustration with how things were going in life. And there's a clue from that presentation what the therapy would involve. Little bit by little bit, it's about ways of taking, well, maybe more incremental control They'd learn arousal management strategies like breathing techniques. They'd learn some kinds of basic self-talk, like if they're about to act in an impulsive way, say to themselves, take it easy, breathe, it's not worth it. If they're about to do something stupid, they'd sort of pick up, it's not worth it, let it go, that kind of thing. And so that would be different, for example, from people who are sent along from someone else. So say with the anger management groups, people were sometimes sent along through the justice system. And as you can imagine, that was more difficult to help people if they had that just external motivation. They had to see a counsellor. It made a big difference if people were more motivated individually because they had a sense of loss. And that's where even when people were sent by the justice system, we would actually ask people about their history of work history of relationships and let it dawn on them and come to the surface how they'd maybe missed out as a result of their impulsive behaviour say including anger or for someone else it might be their addiction or someone else it might be problems with gambling or overeating so that impulsive quality would often come through and so a key was for people to feel that sense of frustration or loss or missing out as a result of those behaviours, to have the necessary motivation, as you say, difficult with an insufficient self-control schema, to then even apply oneself to therapy. So I needed the motivation often to approach things bit by bit, different kind of behavioural strategies, including self-talk, anxiety management, as I mentioned. Maybe problem-solving techniques... A lot of it would be people would come in and talk about what kind of situations they'd faced the last couple of weeks that had been frustrating or difficult or where they'd felt angry, for example, or engaged in using a substance and you'd look at, well, what happened in that situation? What triggered it? Uh, How else might they have handled that situation? Gradually develop alternative ways. And often the change in that situation would be somewhat incremental. But basically, if people look to apply themselves to that it's that notion of switching their frontal lobes on. So, showing self control is basically about using your frontal lobes, which is about doing the difficult thing when the difficult thing is the right thing to do. So, once people cottoned onto the idea, it's doing things that are difficult, that take a degree of patience, that involve tolerating frustration, and a lot of that means that when the person feels an impulse, not just acting straight away. It's almost like stop and think. Just try and get some kind of thought in between the impulse and the action. And often it might be along the lines of thinking, is it worth it? Or if they sense they're about to do something like a pattern, like be aggressive, say to themselves, it's not worth it. It's often those very basic techniques at first and gradually people could get more and more of a sense of a little bit more control. They could maybe stop themselves for yelling in that first two or three seconds, which would be enough time for them, for example, to walk into a different room. Or with drugs and alcohol, it could be urge surfing, recognizing that if people maybe just held on to that urge, that maybe if people just rode out that urge for five or ten minutes, the urge can greatly reduce. And they might find that they don't then act on that addictive behaviour. So just gradually developing more of what we call that self-efficacy, that greater sense of control. And so what I wonder about there is so with a insufficient
0: self-control and low discipline schema, like surrender and avoidance are a little bit more obvious in terms of surrender, as you say, act maybe a little bit impulsively and, and not necessarily show much discipline. Avoidance, you know, avoid tasks or situations that would maybe require some discipline to succeed in in those different tasks. But overcompensation is an interesting one here because if someone kind of inherently, for lack of a better term, lacks discipline, well, they might not even have a concept of what themselves as a disciplined person, you know, what, what their routines and behaviors look like. So, how could someone overcompensate for a lack of discipline schema? Because I suppose what comes to mind is maybe someone could just go, oh, you know, I need to put myself in an environment that's going to make me more disciplined. And so people might, whether it be join the army or go off to, to some sort of, you know, boarding school situation. So what do people often do if they're overcompensating for insufficient self-control and low discipline schema?
1: Oh, that's an interesting idea, the notion of joining the army. If the person knew otherwise that they hated the idea of joining the army, that might be overcompensation. But generally how it shows up is when people are making intense but brief efforts. Rather than a realistic, medium, longer term way of maybe getting more of that self-control, developing more of that tolerance of frustration, they might, for example, have acted impulsively. Then they might apologise profusely to their partner for their, maybe their aggressive behaviour or their drinking. and They swear they'll never do it again and you know, short-lived efforts for a couple of days. They're doing absolutely everything right, trying to be absolutely perfect, but then they just can't keep that up. They're trying to go from one extreme to the other, as opposed to a more sustained, gradual planful chipping away at it bit by bit. So an overcompensation can be a kind of fantasy. Oh, look, I'll just absolutely get right on top of this and make all that effort at first, but it's not a realistic kind of plan.
0: And so it strikes me that the sustainable ability to act in a way that is self-disciplined, it's, it's really that sustainability that we're looking for in this case. But you mentioned something before in terms of maybe if people are indulged or if they have no limits set up for them in childhood. And I wonder if that relates a little bit to the next schema, which is entitlement and grandiosity. So what's an entitlement and grandiosity schema?
1: Okay, now this is where people tend to feel they're special and there's an imbalance that people have in the weight they put on their own interest relative to other people and also where people might not show that level of empathy. So a number of people recognise what we're referring to there is narcissistic traits in a way and so we had a previous episode on narcissistic tendencies and that would generally involve an entitlement schema and that's where people tend to come to therapy because of relationships maybe being over or the threatened loss of a relationship. It can be in a work situation but where gradually, if you like, someone's chickens are coming home to roost from mistreating other people and so that can't keep on going the same way. That's often the way that people present for therapy because of the dissatisfaction of a partner or others. And so in that situation, if someone was, for example, to react in...
0: Way that's surrendering to their schema in a way. Would that be basically acting with this sense of grandiosity and and basically being a narcissist? Like, it strikes me that, you know, if, if people are narcissists, they're probably going to have maybe an entitlement and grandiosity schema. But the other thing that comes to mind there is. For example, there's, a I think, a lot of extreme political views on on both sides of the spectrum where, for example, people are maybe offended about certain things and act in a certain way. Everyone should be offended by that. And, you know, if you're not, you're a worse person sort of thing. It's like, well, hold on. It strikes me there's maybe a little bit more to it in this situation. And so maybe if people are acting in that way, they might have a, a bit of an entitlement and grandiosity schema.
1: Yeah, so the general thing, though, how it usually comes up is the person acting selfishly in disregarding others' feelings. But I think that example that you mentioned as well, if people just disregard other people's views because they're different from their own, yes, that is a degree of entitlement in a sense. But where it often shows up is, say, in relationships, people are not being thoughtful to others, that they're really going for what they want themselves, that they might act angrily towards others and and put them down and judge them and expect unfair things of them and as you can imagine that will be more the case if the person has a defectiveness schema underneath it all that they're looking to overcompensate for like putting down other people it also can be where people have backgrounds where they've been emotionally deprived So with that emotional deprivation schema, sometimes, again, it's an overcompensation for that, for the person to act entitled in their other relationships. So it also can be where people were spoiled as children. And so it was as though they didn't have to consider the usual rules, like they were above the usual rules, which is another feature that can come up with entitlement. And in that situation, it's very important for people to learn to allow themselves to be ordinary learn to recognise other people's interests and also realise that in the long run you're going to actually be happier if you get on with other people. And a lot of that is being able to consider their interests and needs in some kind of balance.
0: And so with avoidance for an entitlement and grandiosity scheme, luck, I wonder if there's maybe a sense of, with someone who's reacting in an avoidant way of, you know, if I did, for example, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this, but if I did... I would be, you know, better than them. Like, I reckon uh there's a fair few people out there, I'd, I'd probably like to include myself on this list, Dad, who, who maybe had a injury or whatever that presented them from a, having a sporting career further down the line. And so they might think, you know, oh, if it wasn't for my bung knee, you know, I would have been as good as anyone else sort of thing. But in reality, well, there's so many more things that go into that. And so I wonder if... For example, if someone has an entitlement and grandiosity scheme and they're looking to avoid that, it's not getting themselves into a situation but then thinking, you know, if I did, I would do it as well as anyone else. Is that the case?
1: Yes. So that really sums it up well because it's kind of like avoiding situations where you can't be special, for example, where you can't excel. So finding a way of avoiding that situation. And look, I'll give another example there of overcompensation. Overcompensation would be if someone acts like they're overly considerate towards other people, like giving extravagant gifts. But there's this sense that the person's not just doing that out of some underlying generosity. There's almost like this show of, what a good person I am to be considering other people like this. So it comes across as not having such an authentic quality. Well, uh, unfortunately, my uh,
0: sporting career, Dad, never got close enough really to uh, be able to blame an injury for that sort of thing, but uh, I somehow wish that I could in a way. But, Dad, I suppose that takes us through all the schema that we'll be going through today in terms of the, the schema that have related to impaired autonomy and performance and impaired limits. So... I suppose just what really comes to mind again is is just how subconscious some of this stuff can be. Like, you know, make a bit of a joke about it there, but often this relates to, you know, experiences within people's childhood where they might have an entrenched pattern really before they, you know, get to an age where they fully understand that. And you might have something more to say about this as well. But it strikes me that... You know, in some ways, you know, we're not our schemers. Like, even the way that we spoke about authenticity before, like, that's something that you can cultivate over time. And I think maybe having a look at at our own schemers, and it strikes me that maybe everyone's going to have at least some influence of some different schemers, even if you had just the most, you know, hypothetically perfect upbringing in some ways, probably not have always gone to just absolute plan, and so I suppose I'm left with, you know, somewhat of a feeling of hope in some ways talking about all this stuff dad because I think that when you do bring more awareness to maybe your own parts and your own patterns in your own life well that can help you too the next time that you're confronted with a situation where you feel that you know you might you might be going down a similar road to what you've been down before well even just having more awareness about some of the influences on you for making those decisions and feeling and thinking a certain way well that can help to kind of take a step back and go you know what this is actually the influence of you know this situation that I've been in it's not necessarily who I am as my most authentic self and it's just a really interesting lens I think to look at things through because we are able to I suppose step back and to almost peel back some of the the layers of influence if that makes sense and and be left with a more authentic looking
1: version of ourselves. Yes, that's something that I think is so helpful about schema therapy. It really looks at the kind of patterns, the more common patterns that can be disruptive. And that's what I think was one of Jeff Young's greatest strengths. And also, it's not so judgmental. Like, for example, if we talk about an entitlement schema, which is not the person themselves. The schema is something for them to identify in their reactions and behaviour and then set themselves apart from and then look to address it, fight it even, look to counter the schema, as opposed to someone, for example, thinking, oh, I have a narcissistic personality, which is kind of blaming and judgmental and almost implies a certain kind of defectiveness that's not kind of helpful. So I just think it helps objectify these patterns of behaviour. And like you're saying, we all have parts and sometimes our reactions can get a bit out of balance. So not everyone's going to have... Well, many people aren't going to have a particular schema that stands out as being so disruptive that we'd look at it as being a particular clinical or personality problem but all of us can have some kind of subtle imbalances in our personality functioning in a particular situation at a particular time. All of us might avoid certain situations or even overcompensate for something even apart from maybe giving in to an impulse or a reaction that might be surrendering to something which is an unhelpful kind of motivation at the time so i think that these kind of themes are relevant to all of us but it's particularly helpful to identify these patterns of behavior when they're more disruptive and they underlie someone's depression or anxiety or relationship problems I know we've got two more families of schemas to go through in the next episode,
0: so do you want to just give us a, a bit of a sneak preview in some ways? What are the, the two core needs that we'll be speaking about which have a family of schemas that relate to them as well?
1: Yes, those two other areas, Rowan. One is other directedness, of which one is an approval schema. so concern for other people's approval versus disapproval, a very common pattern that comes up in therapy. And then the other one is over vigilance and inhibition schema related to that and one is unrelenting standards. so perfectionism which we've talked about in the past and again a very common one that comes up in therapy one of the main factors that can contribute to depression
0: Well, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I'll I'll tell you what, it can be a little bit hard to get your head around all this sort of stuff as someone like myself who hasn't really looked into it. But hopefully today for everyone out there as well, this has been helpful because, yeah, it's good to go over them and, and get a bit more of a sense of, obviously, how they relate to the different needs. But it's been good to talk a bit more about surrender, avoidance and overcompensation today because, obviously, they'll apply to what we spoke about last week, but there's a bit more detail in there last week too, so... Uh, maybe people have a, a bit more of a sense of the different reactions that people can have to schemas, including the schemas that we spoke about last week. So thanks for chatting with me about all this today. Dad, I'm looking forward to the next one. Looking forward to it, Rowan.